Hi, it's G3. And ever since May's CPI print blew away expectations, the already jittery global capital markets have become even more unsettled. And on today, Wednesday, June 15th, the Fed responded by raising rates 75 basis points, which is the first time the Fed has hiked by that amount since November 1994. Back then, the Fed was pretty successful in engineering a soft landing in the economy, but the circumstances are very different this time around. To make sense of it all, I am pleased to welcome Weiss's bond expert, Lundy Wright. So please, check disclosures at the end of the episode and get ready for this one. And with that, welcome. We are recording. Lundy, fantastic to have you here today. Now that the Fed has finally made its move, we have all sorts of interesting questions to talk about as we think what happens down the road with monetary policy, the economy, inflation, and the like. Before we get into some of those issues, let me just ask you up front, did the Fed do or say anything that surprised you? Now, I think the market led them to the path that they took. They did not force what force future tightenings to meet what the market had demanded. And they came in about 40 basis points or so, maybe more, of missing what was priced in. And part of the reaction was the market taking back some of what they priced in. Some of it was the event happened the Fed had met market expectations for June. They may very well meet market expectations for July. It sounds like it's a coin flip at this point, between 50 and 75. And so having sat on loads of cash that we've talked about endlessly for the last six months, a lot of people, as we head into quarter end, put some of that money to work. And so we did see buying in stocks, we saw buying in bonds. I believe it's predominantly real money that was in buying and just taking some of the cash that they had accumulated and felt this was a good time to put some of it to work. I don't think that the trajectory of inflation going forward has altered a basis point based on what the Fed did today. In fact, because the Fed was not as aggressive as the markets had hoped they would be, you could argue that inflation could live longer than it would have otherwise. But for today, the market rallied, and I think sometime in the next couple of weeks, and I'm not positive what the event will be, but sometime in the next couple of weeks, people will start to scratch their head and say, at these levels, we still have the inflation problem. It hasn't gone anywhere. The Fed's going to have to come back and be aggressive again, and the market will start to price that in yet again. You've talked about the enormous amount of debt that the U.S. government has incurred, and I think even though you and Jordy may have some disagreements as to how you see things proceeding from here, you share this perspective that the amount of debt that the government has is going to warp the way in which policymakers are going to proceed moving forward. Could you summarize the conundrum given the current inflation problem that we're having and the amount of debt that the U.S. now has? Sure. Sure. The government can't stop borrowing, right? Back in the financial crisis, the housing crisis, we had a change in the mix of borrowing. But overall borrowing, aggregate borrowing went up and has continued to go up. The mix changed from 
being dominated by homeowners and our households and by corporations and was, the government level is still long, but households and corporations got themselves into a better debt position afterwards. And it bubbled up, all that debt bubbled up to the top of the pyramid, to the government level. So here we are now with the government at greater and greater levels of debt. And we had a this concept that I think is a partisan concept that is pretending to be sound economics. And it was, we can continue, and even Janet Yellen endorsed this, we can continue to borrow more because our net interest expense is low. When you're at zero rates, yeah, your net interest expense is low, but now we're at 3% rates and your net interest expense isn't low anymore, but the government can't stop borrowing. So here we have this situation where now we've pushed ourselves to where net interest expense is no longer going to be costless or near costless. And instead, now there's a true cost to it. I've seen households reduce their debt loads over my lifetime, increase and decrease. I've seen corporations increase and decrease their debt loads. I haven't seen governments decrease their debt loads. Governments increase their debt loads. And so now we're in this moment where growth is slowing Inflation is high. Interest rates are higher because inflation is high. And the government is going to have a higher net interest expense now. And they can't stop borrowing because as stagflation happens, their revenues, their tax receipts are going to diminish relative to previous growth patterns. So the credit card that the government has used is now going to incur a bigger monthly amount at the very same time in which it is not going to have the additional tax receipts from economic growth to cover their higher credit card bills. And so even as we get to this position, a lot of people will say things along the lines, and they're not wrong when they say it, but they'll say higher inflation decays the value of liabilities. It's good. That assumes it's not decaying the value of assets too. And during inflation, it for many assets, most assets, it's decaying them too. So both sides of the balance sheet are getting decayed by inflation in this case. All debt that is going to be new debt or rolled over debt from what refinanced debt from what exists is going to be at a higher rate. And so that is the problem. And what then happens down the road is doesn't happen in the first three months or six months, but as time passes, it starts to squeeze out of the budget other programs. So you like your education program? Well, geez, interest expenses just went up X amount. We're going to have to reduce other programs by X amount in order to make budget. And so it gets more and more difficult for the government to be in this situation. It's a squeeze. It is a squeeze. I would add it's a scary squeeze. And even though we have had other periods in American economic history, where we have been confronted with great challenges, you have remarked to me on more than one occasion that this time is in fact different. Can you go into a little detail as to why? Inflation has broken the back of fantasy economics. For decades, 35, 40 years, we've been able to grow as a nation, we've been able to do extraordinary measures in recent times as a nation in order to keep growth alive. 
And in response, we've been increasing our debt. And our debt to GDP has been going up and up. That was all during times when inflation was going down. During those times, we've birthed concepts like MMT, where we suddenly, people say, you can just keep borrowing. You can just keep borrowing. It's costless to do so. And so at the government level, that's been one of the things that has happened. With inflation, that entire concept has been trashed. The Fed was also forced during this time to morph from a dual mandate thought to a many mandates. You said many mandates, not many mandates, many mandates. Yeah, they have been forced to morph from a dual mandate to many mandates, multiple mandates. Some of them was do not tighten until the lowest quintile of workers are fully employed. Do not tighten or make specific arrangements for climate change. Central bank activism is really what it came down to. And so as they were doing this and they were doing this, it starts to put them behind the the eight ball. They were behind the curve on inflation in part because they said they saw it as temporary, but in part because of this pressure. And so suddenly that whole concept gets trashed by inflation too. They have said forever, we have the tools to stop inflation. There's one example of it in 40 years, and it was 40 years ago. That one example, they raised rates to 18, 20%, put the nation into recession. That's their example of tools. So are those the tools they're going to use again today? And so here we are as their purpose, really, it should have been Congress's role to be focused on the lowest quintile, change laws. But instead, they forced it onto unelected officials. They can move more quickly than Congress. Yes, but that's because they're not accountable like Congress is. Right. They also made a huge mistake, and this, in my opinion, was political pressure as well. And it's not a one-side political pressure. It just depends on the situation. They started quantitative easing as an emergency measure. They never stopped it long after we were well past emergencies. And so they built up the balance sheet so large that now reducing the balance sheet is going to be tough. And over the next two and a half years, their intention is to re- allow $3 trillion of the balance sheet to run off. That means by the end of 2024, the markets are going to need a home for $3 trillion treasuries and mortgages that they wouldn't otherwise, because if they left the balance sheet the same, the Fed would be in there buying that runoff, the equivalent runoff or $3 trillion of assets over that time. So this is forcing the market to, at a time when inflation is a problem, to deal with more supply too from that. So these are ideas that, in my opinion, never worked ever in the course of history. And now here we are trying to work our way out of these problems, and those problems aren't going to get worked out of easily. The obvious counter to what you said is, well, Lundy, that sounds very scary. Therefore, At some point, the Fed is going to have to go back into the market and engage in yield curve control because we can't allow rates to find their natural level at the markets because societal instability will result. What would you respond to that? Yield curve control is a terrible policy. The only time you can exit yield curve control 
without disruption is exactly when you don't want to exit it. So if yield curve control, let's just say that in the U.S., they said, we're going to buy every two-year note that until it's at 1%. The idea is everybody rallies the front end of the market. That 1% threat is so large that nobody ever tests it. And if yields go to 50 basis points, people say, see, yield curve control is working, even though they're not using it. It's just the threat that they're using, really. If the markets say, you know what? Two-year notes should be at 4%, not one. Suddenly, the whole universe is selling 1% to the government. The exact time they don't want to be holding it down, it's so onerous to hold it down. If they exit it, the disruption that happens is dramatic. So I really dislike yield curve control. It's For some reason in the last few years, it has gotten a lot of attention and a lot of pseudo endorsements along the way. And I just think it's a flawed policy. Speaking of it, though, as you know, there is another central bank, a big central bank that has been engaging in yield curve control, and that's Japan, which, by the way, remains the largest foreign creditor to the U.S. But on the day that this podcast is going to be released, the BOJ, which I think you could argue is perhaps the most radical major central bank in the world will have had their policy meeting. And if they choose to taper or widen out the band, or at least talk about widening out the band, wouldn't that be the instance where we can see up close what happens when you try to unwind yield curve control? Yep. And you can see right now what's happening with them not. Their currency has cheapened by nearly 20%. Their 10-year notes are up 10 to 20 basis points, depending on your start point this year, while the rest of the world's 10-year notes are up like 200 basis points or so. And they are weakening their currency. They're weakening the assets of their nation by printing money to hold this in. They are literally printing money to buy their own securities that they're issuing to hold them at that level. So we are seeing that happen right now. If they widen the band and let it go, let's just say they go from 25 basis points where the upper bound is now to 50, just for argument's sake. And that's possible that it happens. If they do that, their currency is going to snap back 5 to 10% probably within a day, if not instantly. At the same time, by the Bank of Japan buying so many long-dated assets, tenure notes, between various cross-currency curves, you have a bid in the back end of rates markets around the world. If they widen that band by 25 bips, suddenly all those relationships that have gone in to help support long-end assets around the world snap by 25 basis points. I would expect curves to steepen immediately on it and around the world, in the US, Europe, once they do that, and by going, it's an admission that the yield curve pressure is too much, that is immediately, there's another step of pressure going on. It's just like everything that's stretched too far, once it breaks, everybody will say, well, 50 basis points, let's like push this down until it gets to 100, because we really think it ought to be 150. I'm just picking out a number. But we really think that their rates are that far offline, maybe 200. And so 
once you start, you're going to have to defend again. But now you've shown that you're willing to change. And I think the whole world starts to gang up on you at that point. And that's the problem with not having a free floating market that where you're, you literally have a line in the sand and it's a target and people will do everything that they can if they think that target's vulnerable or breaking. What you're saying is there'll be a gigantic sucking sound away from bond markets around the world and into Japan, though, on a relative basis, all of a sudden Japanese paper is going to appear to be more attractive than it was in previous years. Possibly, or it's just the valuation of them. If you're pinning the valuation of tenure notes around the world based off where Japan, because the way you can use the swap markets and FX markets in order to back into a number, once you break one of those pins, one of those supports, which is this 25 basis points, now everything gets revalued. Right. Okay. Fascinating. All right. I want to turn back to the Fed here. And you and I have discussed how the Fed can't control the situation in Ukraine. They have no ability to influence global crop yields or determine the outcome of Omicron in China. So back to what the Fed can do, they can, in theory, crater demand. Maybe it can do that through surprise rate hikes, although I doubt it with this Fed. Maybe it can do that through continued jawboning. But Clearly, it seems as though, in your view, tightening will be the best tool that they have to deal with a very difficult situation. But let me just ask you, if 401ks and 529s across this nation get cut again, even from these levels, do you think that the Fed will have the fortitude to press forward? friend of mine said, there's no atheists in the foxholes. And it's a difficult question for the Fed because there will be pain. And so for decades, the government has responded, and I mean decades, has responded to every economic financial crisis and pain with easy money and or the government with free money. These reactions were possible in part because of the absence of high inflation risk. To get back to that, inflation doesn't extinguish itself. So here we are, and we're going to start to feel pain, but inflation remains. And so I think it's possible that the Fed may pause on their balance sheet runoff if things got bad enough. I think that's a possibility. They could pause on QT because the markets then don't have to position $3 trillion worth of assets over time. It is an admission, though, that we're possibly never being able to escape a QE at this point. Because once it started, how do you get out? You can see it going on in Europe right now. Italy is widening out. It's over 200 basis points wide to the buns. The Italian officials and banks think that 100 to 150 is the range where they think it ought to be. They stopped their QE, it's APP. As a result, Italian debt is widening out. Now they're having emergency meetings to start it back up or something like it, anything to hold it in. And that becomes the concern because now to just take it forward logically, when are you able to get out of that? It's central bank chicken, right? (laughs) There's a lot of that that's going on right now. What has changed 
is inflation. When inflation wasn't present, you basically got away with increasing your debt. You got away with doing extraordinary measures long past their usefulness of an emergency situation. And so now we have to deal with higher rates. We have to deal with inflation. And when I said inflation doesn't extinguish itself, in my mind, there's two choices. If they don't get rid of inflation, inflation will get rid of growth, real growth by itself. If they get rid of inflation, they may be getting rid of real growth in the short term. But in the one situation, inflation remains afterwards without growth. In the other situation, inflation is gone without growth. And I think the Fed and the government, but the Fed thinks at this point, they can probably restart growth from these yield levels easier than they could extinguish inflation. What about this idea of moving the goalposts and abandoning the 2% target on inflation and say, maybe that should be more like 3%? I think at this point, that's a disaster. That is an admission that they cannot bring inflation down. I think you would have assets have to reprice dramatically on that realization that the Fed is changing the goalposts, as you said, in order to try to achieve some balance between growth and inflation. Could it happen? They're going to have to be far more clever than just saying, eh, you know, we think it should be 3%, not 2%. And they've changed goalposts all the time, but it takes time. And part of the problem with all of this is because the Fed either misdiagnosed the situation, was persuaded by politics, was persuaded by whatever forces, they were behind the curve. And because they were behind the curve, they don't have the same bandwidth of ability, the same freedom to be patient, to be more creative along the way, because inflation is here. We're at 8%, 8% year over year. By the turn of this year, by the first quarter of next year, three-month moving average, annualized, seasonally adjusted, bottoms out just above 3%. And by May, it's back over 4%. So in November, it's 5%. So it goes from 5% to 3 back up to 4 Let's just say it's a 4% average. Year over year by May of next year gets to about 5% average. And this is what's priced in to the fixings, to the inflation markets right now. Should they still have that 2% target? And I'm going to argue they will. Should they still have that 2% target? And yet real inflation is at arguably a run rate of 4% with the Fed funds rate at 340, which is what they said their end of year target would be. Maybe by May, it would be 375, might be 380. They still have to get inflation down 2% more. They're not going to do that by being neutral. They have to tighten more to knock inflation down even more. They have to be vigilant. And if that means that seniors are complaining, if that means that the job market is weaker, whatever that means, and certainly someone will be disadvantaged in this and someone will be upset, and whatever that means, for them to decide, you know what? We're going to have to just live with 4% inflation and then turn and try to bring back growth. The second they try to bring back growth, that 4% inflation is not sitting still at 4%. And so they have to control it. And it's as unfortunate as it is, they have to tame it. All right. Last question. Last week when we were talking, you essentially expressed the viewpoint that in the current 
climate for many individual investors, there is nowhere to hide but cash. And as you know, everyone from Jordy to Ray Dalio has pointed out that cash is a guaranteed money loser where inflation is now and likely where it, it will be in the future. And as you know, there are a lot of allocators who don't have the luxury of staying in cash. So for those who have to deploy capital, given where things are now and where you expect them to be over the course of the next few months, where would you be looking if you had to deploy capital? It's a tough question. I would say cash, while it is an absolute loser, so far this year, stocks have been a bigger loser. Bonds have been a bigger loser. And I think that's a risk that going forward, that even though cash is a loser, it's a less of a loser than other potential assets. That said, I do like the concept of, even though a lot of commodities have run a lot, I like the concept of staying in commodities at this point or still going into them. And one of the primary thoughts behind that is between what the United States did with SWIFT, between what aggressions that we've seen with the Ukraine and Russia, and the, just the movement toward deglobalization that Trump kicked off and then turboed with COVID and now with war and conflict is going even further. The likelihood of over the next five years of every nation for its own security, the likelihood of every nation needing to build up their own steel, their own technology, computer chips, their own technology systems, everything that they've put out that could be deemed to other nations because it's cheaper, that could be deemed as being a security threat, they may very well have to onshore it. Stockpile. That or make it themselves. Or and so themselves, you're yeah. talking about demand for commodities that probably 10 years from now, 15 years from now, the amount of global overcapacity will be extreme. But in the interim, people are going to be building this for their own security purposes. And so for that reason... I like the thought of commodity still. The cleanest, uh, dirty shirt, I should say, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. A friend of mine sent me today a chart on lost decades, and it really resonated with me because it went back 100 years or so. And every time we've had a really strong bull market that lasted for 10, 15 years or whatever, we seem to have a decade or more where the stock market basically has no returns. It's not just stock market, 60, 40 portfolios basically have no returns for 10, 15 years. And after this extreme run-up that we've had, a wonderful run-up, but with a lot of borrowed money, we've had shocks to the system. It's not hard to imagine that lost decade is somewhere in front of us. And that probably isn't a way to trade the market today because it's not a short-term trade concept. And we could run up for another who knows how long, but that lost decade concept is coming. And I don't know when it starts, but it, it does resonate with me. Lundy, all I can say is, as we conclude here, I hope at some point we have an upbeat conversation and I hope <laughs> it doesn't have to require us to do this for 10 years. I hope so too. All righty. Thank you so much, Lundy. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time and having me. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. 
The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.